0: As you can tell from the setup, this is not usual and traditional medical grand rounds and we're delighted to have Susie with us today to give her perspectives on her life as a guitardiologist, and she'll explain what that means. Um, To introduce her today, I'd like to ask Bob McClellan to come here to tell us a little bit about her, Um, obviously choosing Bob because the topic for today is a little bit about, a lot about. work-life balance and about burnout and wellness and attention to oneself, and Bob has been our champion here to move that forward. There are many new initiatives underway to really address um, this problem for all of us practicing medicine today. So Bob, come tell us about Susie. Bob is a full professor of medicine and director Of our section leader in our occupation medicine section um, and runs and directs our wellness programs for our employees. Bob, come tell us about Susie.
1: So it's uh, certainly an honor, but also fun to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Susie Brown Sachs and uh, her husband, who I don't see right at the moment, but I will. Also say a few words about him. Um, I first uh, had the privilege of uh, meeting her uh, as an audience member at a conference uh, last fall, uh, international conference on physician health, which I commend to you if you have the opportunity. It occurs uh, once a year, um, and the theme last year was uh, joy in medicine, and so. Uh, Dr. Uh, Brown uh, is an obvious uh, addition to to that program and certainly a a wonderful addition to our efforts here to be thinking about uh, our own health and uh, well-being. So as an audience member, I and my colleagues in the audience were inspired by her journey uh, to find joy in her life, which now combines cardiology, music, and family, Um, But her academic journey began right here uh, at Dartmouth College um, and leaving here she uh, went south to get her M.D. at Harvard. uh, Stayed there uh, to complete her residency in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's and then went down to a fellowship at uh, University of Pennsylvania in uh, cardiovascular medicine at the same time, uh, took on uh, an academic program getting a master's in translational research uh, in the same uh, institution. And it was then, and I remember you talking about this epiphany, uh, that it was very clear how important music was to her life and her joy. Um, so medical grand round introductions you know, typically start with a review of the number of papers that someone has written and indeed She has written many on a variety of esoteric uh, topics and varied genes I've never heard of. Uh, But today, I also get to say she's published five albums, uh, won multiple uh, songwriting awards, and her music can be found in places that maybe the papers that we've written can't be found, such as at Starbucks uh, or The Gap. Um, (laughs) Now, between musical gigs with her husband, and I understand this particular Gig here. This medical conference is really the only medical conference, and the rest of her tour is quite musical indeed. Uh, but hopefully, you mix a little bit of cardiology with these gigs too. Right? <laughs> 30, right. um, you get everyone's heart thumping though I'm sure. <laughs> um, but so as she travels around, she, as she is today, uh, presenting academic uh, in academic settings as well, uh, and gets to travel to a variety of medical conferences talking about her journey to find joy in in her life, um, with lessons for us, of course. Um, After completing her uh, fellowship in cardiovascular medicine, she went on to work at the Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia, uh, where she became co-director of the heart failure section and medical director of the ventricular assist device program. And then she moved to Vanderbilt, uh, where since 2014, she's been an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine, uh, which just so happens to be located in Nashville. I don't know if that had anything to do with it at all, but clearly the heart of the music industry. right? So there, her life as a musician uh, fuels her work as an advanced heart failure and heart transplant cardiologist. Uh, Now with her uh, is her husband, uh, uh, Scott Sacks, who uh, is a Grammy-awarding song uh, recording artist, um, has had contracts with multiple recording labels, um, and has now entered the world of videography as well. So we welcome him as well.
2: Thank you so much. It really is an honor to be, especially here back at Dartmouth. I um, Feel like it's sort of full circle for me, starting my academic life here and then ending up back here, especially in this capacity. Because if you had asked me when I started medical school if I would be invited to give grand rounds on my life of a guitar on my life as a guitar diologist, I would have certainly told you that would never happen. Um, so I just want to start out by pointing out that the connection between music and medicine is not a new one. This is the Greek god Apollo, and he was the god of both music and of health. The stethoscope was invented by a French physician named Dr. Lenneck. You may not know, though, that he was also an accomplished flautist. And then moving on to more recent times, uh, anyone know who this is? Bueller? <laughs> Someone knows, come on. Queen. Queen. Um, So that's Freddie Mercury in the front. You guys probably recognize him. Um, Brian May, who was the guitar player, went on to be an astrophysicist after Queen broke up. Uh, Roger Taylor, the drummer, had actually moved to London to be a dentist. He was in dental school when Queen got together. And John Deacon, the bass player, went on to be an electrical engineer after he left Queen. And in the case of my own family, on um, the top left are my mother's parents, Reuben and Mindel. Mindel was a, n- a nurse, and Reuben was a professional violinist. He played with the Montreal Philharmonic Orchestra and was also part of the Entertainment Corps of the Canadian Army during World War II. And he eventually had to leave professional, the professional music world, because he couldn't afford to support his family. And my mother tells me he never, he never got over that. Um, Below them are my father's parents, Sydney and Jesse. You can tell from Sydney's physique that he was a very accomplished gymnast. Um, but in addition, despite having never really finished school, he had an amazing way with words. He had to leave high school to go to work to support his family because they were quite poor. Uh, but somehow, he was just a really gifted lyricist and poet. And he made up poems on all sorts of special occasions. Every birthday I had a poem. Every holiday there was a poem. And on the occasion of his 90th birthday, he actually wrote his entire life story in rhyme. And I want to share with you just a little segment of it. This was talking about growing up and not having a lot of money and um, his older sister who they kind of spoiled. Um, On her, we lavished lots of attention, factory work for her you couldn't even mention. Into her we must cram both culture and knowledge, so we tightened our belt and sent her to O'Sullivan College. And if that didn't do, to add to her culture and to keep her away from some scheming young vulture, my mother persuaded us our purse strings to loosen so that Pauline could someday find a suitable chosen. Um, So we scrimped and we saved and we made do for less. If we needed something, the answer never was yes so that music could be added to her budding career, we bought my sister an upright clavier piano. The piano in our house was an instant sensation, but sadly did not give my sister inspiration. However, it was I who did what I did and earned the reputation as one-finger Sid. My sister had a bow, and believe it or not, he wanted the piano before he would tie the knot. I took him aside, and I said to him, Mr., if you want that piano, you'll have to take my sister. So I like to think whatever gift I may have for writing lyrics comes in large part from my grandpa Sydney. Um, and then on the right is a picture of my own family. Uh, on the far left is my older sister Mandy, holding my niece Nadia. Um, Mandy's a neonatologist at Boston Children's, actually now at the Brigham. Um, my mother, Roz, who's in the audience right up there, is a pediatric endocrinologist. Um, my father, Bob, who's also in the audience, is a pulmonary critical care physician, and also um, was a member of a folk trio in the 60s in Montreal, plays guitar and things. And my brother Eric on the right was a math major at Dartmouth, graduated Phi Beta Kappa, and, um, and then moved to LA to become a rock star.
3: <laughs>
2: so you can see that this, this, you know, combination of music and medicine, I come by quite honestly. Growing up, Like many young girls, I was obsessed with the sound of music. I knew every word to every song and I played the record on my Winnie the Pooh record player. Um, I took piano lessons from a scary woman named Miss DeVore who had arthritic knobbly knuckles and um, would yell at me for not practicing. And she was right, I did not practice enough and the reason was that I was way too busy belting out Whitney Houston and Billy Joel and any other number of artists in the comfort of my bedroom. I loved to sing you know, from a very young age. Though so at that time, it was really a private thing for me. Um, when we'd be on car rides and I would sing along with the radio, my dad would always say, louder, Susie, louder, at which point I would immediately stop singing. <laughs> Since you know, anything your parents ask you to do, you immediately stop doing. Um, I went on to Dartmouth College, where I majored in biophysical chemistry and um, studied pre-med. Um, I like to show this picture even when I'm not at Dartmouth, but this is Bill Kinlaw, who I understand is away. way. But um, he was kind enough to let me work in his lab. Um, my favorite or least favorite part of this picture is this piece of lint hanging from my nose, which was because <laughs> it was taken on a real camera, not on a, an iPhone. So back then, you could have lint coming from your nose in a picture. But anyway, uh, Bill Kinlaw was an extremely kind mentor to me. He taught me how to... Do some basic techniques and basic science, and just gave me an exposure to what the life of a physician scientist was like. Um, put my name on papers, you know, that I helped with. He was a great, great, great person. I'm really sad I'm not going to see him today. Um, all throughout college, I had what I called a cappella envy. I would go to see the a cappella groups, and just wish I could sing with them, but I was way too shy to audition until my senior year when. I'll never forget it, I was studying for a physics test and I checked my email and there was an email that Rock-A-Pella's rehearsal Rockapella's auditions were in 15 minutes. So I left my books in the library and I just ran over there and I warmed up in a bathroom stall and I tried out for the Rockapellas. And I made the group, uh, this is a picture of my very first concert as a Dartmouth Rockapella, and I've outlined myself in red because I had so much stage fright that I was practically hiding behind the girl (laughs) next to me. Uh, My parents drove up from Boston to see the show and they took this picture. Um, But this was a real game changer for me. Uh, It is kind of cliche to say that I never felt like I fit in. But I never felt like I fit in before I joined the Rockapellas. And it made me realize that music people are my people. Music people, creative people are my people, that's who I feel at home with and I don't think I ever knew who I felt at home with before or where I felt at home. Uh, so senior year came and went, I graduated from college, I had plans to go to medical school and I took two years off to work in another research lab, this time in the lab of Dr. Andrew Arnold at Mass General um, and he was another fabulous mentor to me gave me my own independent projects. I was manager of the lab, um, allowed me to write write up and present my papers at national meetings. Um, this is a picture of me at the Endocrine Society uh, pre- presenting one of my posters. And I remember this meeting particularly fondly because my mother, who's a uh, pediatric endocrinologist, had a poster at the same meeting. So we were we went together, we were roomies. And I think we probably were the on, only mother-daughter pair at the meeting. Uh, But during this time when I was in the lab, I bought a guitar as a way to be able to keep singing. I figured if I couldn't be in a group, I could be a one-woman band. And with the help of my rock star brother, Eric, um, learned some chords and just started figuring out songs, cover songs and played them to myself. After the two years ended and right before medical school, I wanted to have a sort of palate cleanser experience. Um, So I decided to go to Berklee College of Music in Boston for their summer performance camp. And um, it was like a dream. I took music music theory, I took voice lessons for the first time. I was the only Jewish girl in the gospel choir. Um, It was amazing. Um, And I took a class called the Vocal Performance Lab. And I found this a few years ago, actually, when we were moving to Nashville. I was looking through all my stuff in my office, and I found this. So we had an assignment where we had to write a review of a fictitious concert, because you have to do a lot of self-promotion as a musician. So they wanted us to practice that. So I just want to show you what I wrote. Most of us thought that when she left music to practice medicine 15 years ago, she would never be able to come back with the same success (coughs) and critical acclaim, how wrong we were. I mean, I got the goosebumps. It was I hadn't written a single song or gone to a single day of medical school, and yet somehow, deep down, I knew that I was going to have to find a way to marry these two parts of me. And I remember just having a sense of panic as the summer was coming to an end. And I even started to cry in my last voice lesson, just feeling so desperately afraid to lose that feeling that music gives me. And my teacher, Deirdre, I'll never forget, said, Susie Brown, You know what? You're lucky that you're good at more than one thing. Music is all I have. And you could be Aretha Franklin these days and never know when your next paycheck is coming. Um, So my advice to you is go be a doctor and make time for music later. And realistically speaking, I didn't really play an instrument that well. I'd never written a song. What was I really going to do as a professional musician? (coughs) So off I went to Harvard Medical School. And I took Deirdre's advice. I fit in music wherever I could. I was in a local production of the, the play Hair. Um, yes, we did the full Monty. <laughs> this is our second year show where I was giving a stirring rendition of Smooth Opturator. <laughs> um, and I studied really hard. I actually loved medical school. I had an interest in cardiology from the beginning. Um, this is me studying for the uh, step one of the boards, and I think I counted about six different colored highlighters there. Um, <laughs> and I went ahead and applied for residency in internal medicine, I was at the Brigham. Um, This was on my Mickey rotation. I'll say several things about this picture. Number one, my hemoglobin was not, in fact, five. (laughs) I was just really overtired and I hadn't seen the sun in a long time. Um, the other thing that I will say is you might wonder what the sticker is on my head. Mark, I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember that sleep study they did among interns and residents? So I was a subject in a sleep study and it paid really well. I bought my first home computer and I went on vacation to like the Caribbean somewhere with the money I made. But. Um, <laughs> Um, you had to wear EEG leads for three days at a time while you were on call so that they could measure your sleep and your wake. So they knew every time you were falling asleep on rounds, they knew it. Um, but you couldn't wash your hair. I mean, it was so disgusting. Um, and then we also had to spit in a tube every six hours so that they could measure our our stress hormones. So you had to chew on paraffin and spit in a tube. Ah, the glory. <laughs> So I continued to try and fit in music where I could uh, during residency. I was in a band called the um, Rod the Longbone. I think they're still around, but it was mostly orthopedic surgeons, as you might guess from the <laughs> name. But they were kind enough to let me sing with them. Um, we were under-rehearsed, semi-talented, and we had a lot of fun. Um, and I had just made some friends who played music, and we got together and jammed every few months. I did apply for a fellowship, um, and I matched at the University of Pennsylvania. So off I went to Philadelphia, where I didn't know anybody. Um, And so all of my friendships really came from the hospital. And it surprised me how much I missed my small but mighty music world. Um, I was sort of starved for it, but cardiology fellowship is busy, and I didn't really have much time to have a life outside of the hospital. And as my fellowship progressed, I just had this, on one hand, I loved being a doctor, but on the other hand, I felt like I just wasn't as happy as I thought I should be. I didn't feel as fulfilled as I thought I should be. You know, here I had spent almost all of my time and energy as a young adult working towards this goal of being a successful academic physician, and yet with each medical or academic accolade, teaching awards and milestones and all this stuff, I just didn't, I felt like that happiness was still just out of my reach. I felt like I hadn't quite arrived. I was always looking for the next step. I wasn't quite there yet. Um, I didn't really know what to do with that information, but I just couldn't couldn't shake that feeling. I, I like to say I thought, you know, from the outside I probably looked like that girl on the left, but on the inside I felt like that girl on the right. So I want to stop for a minute and just say a few words about physician burnout, Um, and this is getting more and more attention recently, and I'm glad it is. Um, So burnout can be defined as a pathological syndrome in which emotional depletion and maladaptive detachment develop in response to prolonged occupational stress. And there's a man named Maslach who's done a lot of work in this field, and he's defined three main dimensions of burnout, and those include emotional exhaustion. Depersonalization and cynicism or detachment. I like to say that's when you're like running a code, doing chest compressions and making a joke, you know, three seconds later, not even registering that someone just died and that's someone's father or brother or, you know, husband. Um, Feelings of inefficacy or lack of personal achievement. And burnout is most likely when job demands are high, when individual autonomy is low, when job stress interferes with home life, with home life and when there are asymmetrical rewards. And by that I mean, at least in the case of medicine, we're sort of always expected to do things right. We're always expected that we'll make the right diagnosis, that we'll prescribe the right treatment, that you never miss a thing. Um, and if you do something right, you won't really get any particular credit for it, it's just taken for granted. And yet, if you make a mistake, God forbid you make a mistake, you're subject to ridic- ridicule, we're so hard on ourselves, you can, You're you're afraid of being sued. Um, So it's very asymmetric in in the world of medicine. And ironically, the more one fears making a mistake, the more likely one is to make one. Um, And you can see why trainees are particularly at risk for burnout. So I'm gonna highlight a few studies in a growing literature on physician burnout. The first is this study that looked at medical students, residents, and early career physicians relative to a controlled population. And they surveyed them with regard to their demographics, burnout, depression, and suicidal ideology, quality of life, and fatigue. And what they found was that certain aspects of burnout are most common in medical school students and progressively get better throughout training. And those include low level of personal accomplishment. It sort of makes sense you feel more accomplished as you progress through your training. And then depression and suicidal ideation are most common in, in medical students and become less common as you progress through training, though still, you know, 40% of early career physicians have signs of depression. High levels of depersonalization, um, overall burnout and high fatigue are most common among residents and then get better in early career and, and are not as severe. So sort of like a A peak during residency and then gets better in early career. And then I just want to highlight that despite the fact that a lot of things do get better in early career physicians, you can see that 40% of early career physicians have high levels of emotional exhaustion and 50% have at least one major sign of burnout. So even though it gets better it's not very good. Um, And then when you compare these medical students, residents, and physicians to a control population, you can see that in all aspects of training, medical people are more burned out compared to their controls. Um, In terms of depression, depression is more common among medical students and residents, but not necessarily among early career physicians. And then fatigue, you won't be surprised, is more common um, among medical students and residents, but not early career physicians. They used a 1 to 10 scale. That's why those numbers look kind of funny. Um, so in this, the findings in this study have been replicated in many other studies, and I'll highlight just a few. This first one, published in 2008, looked at medical students at seven different medical schools in the United States and found that 50% of medical students had signs of burnout and 11.2% had had suicidal ideation in the last year. To me, that's just astonishing. Um, This other study in 2006 performed a systematic review of 40 articles on medical student uh, psychological distress in both the US and Canada. And again, found consistently higher levels of depression, anxiety, and burnout than control populations, uh, possibly higher in females. And these data have been replicated across the world in many different countries. Um, I'll highlight just this one study um, on residents that was published by Niku Thomas um, in JAMA, and she performed a review of 15 articles (coughs) across about 20 years on resident burnout um, and identified several possible important factors that modulate your risk for burnout, and that includes amount of debt, marital status, or whether you have children, and male versus female, with female um, residents being potentially at higher risk. And then among attending physicians, this study was just published in 2015, Um, And it's neat because it's a follow-up study to a similar one they had done in 2011 so they could follow what happened over time. And again, they sampled U.S. physicians and a control population with regard to certain demographics, hours worked per week, um, levels of burnout, symptoms of depression and suicidal ideation, and then satisfaction with work-life balance. And they compared their data with a similar study they had done in 2011. And what they found was that um, in 2014, 47% of physicians had a high level of emotional exhaustion. Almost 35% had a high level of depersonalization and 16% had a low feeling of personal accomplishment. We've, we saw in that other study that that low feeling of personal accomplishment is sort of gets better as you progress through training. Um, 54% had at least one major component of significant burnout. And you can see at the bottom um, that only about 40% felt satisfied with their work-life balance. So f- over 50% were burned out, and only, uh, only 40% felt satisfied with work-life balance. And when you look at it over time, everything's getting worse. So the, the percentage burned out went from 45% to 55%, and those satisfied with work-life balance went down from 48% to 40%. Um, and depression is holding steady at about 40% and suicidal ideation also has not changed. <laughs> I really like this graph from the, um, from the paper. So on the x-axis is percentage burned out and on the y-axis is percentage satisfied with work-life balance. So occupational medicine is in the lead. That is where the money is. Um, I know. And urology, you're out of luck, guys, sorry. Um, This is where my own general internal medicine, that's where that falls. Um, But it's just interesting to look. Neurosurgery has extremely low. It's weird. They're least satisfied with work-life balance, but they're not very burned out. Maybe they're just all workaholics. I don't know. But it's interesting to look at. Um, And then when they compared their data with the controls, again, they found physicians were at increased risk for burnout. They had a lower rate of satisfaction with work-life balance. And that was even after adjusting for age and sex, relationship status, and hours worked per week. People who work the same number of hours per week are less burned out if they're just not a doctor. Um, Burnout has consequences. Uh, It's associated with increased errors. And patients of burned-out physicians are less compliant with their physician's plans. Um, Turnover, I know in my own field of heart failure, turnover in in the medical team is associated with increased readmissions for heart failure. Um, And it, of course, has personal consequences, depression, failed relationships, that kind of thing. So what do we do about burnout? I don't think anyone really knows, but there are a few studies in the literature um, that I'll highlight looking at. You know, interventions. So this was back in 1991, so obviously this issue has been around for a while, but in this study they gave a group of residents a four-hour stress management workshop, it was just a one-time deal, and they taught them skills in personal management and relationships, outlook and stamina, and then reassessed them six weeks later. And what they found was that their level of emotional exhaustion decreased, but the other aspects of burnout continued to get worse as they did in the control group. One potential criticism of this study was that for any of you who are residents or remember residency, anyone who can take four hours out of their day to do a stress management workshop is probably systematically different from the people who don't feel like they have that time. Maybe more mature, maybe just better compensated in some way. So it is what it is. And then. This next study, instead of one four-hour seminar, gave four weekly seminars, similarly in stress reduction techniques. And again, burnout decreased in the intervention group, but it was driven by improvement in emotional exhaustion. And the other aspects of burnout didn't improve. And then there was this study that looked at a more sort of long-term program on attending physicians, primary care physicians. And they participated in an eight-week intensive phase followed by a 10-month maintenance phase, so much more long-term. And they learn mindfulness meditation, self-awareness exercises, they use narratives about meaningful clinical experiences, which I think is sort of the medical equivalent of practicing gratitude, Um, and then other didactics. And in this case, the participants demonstrated improvements in all aspects of burnout. You know, how practical is this to do in everyone? I don't know, but at least we know that these things do help um, interestingly, work hour regulations do not affect burnout. I think we're probably just still above the threshold of hours. So in my, own, in my own case, I turned towards music more and more as a place where I could show my vulnerability and just be honest about how I was really feeling. Um, I was in the lab doing this master's in translational research. So I had my nights and weekends free for the first time in, what, a decade. And I started going out to see music kind of obsessively. I got to know all these musicians in the local Philadelphia music scene. And I found some friends to play guitar with, just covers. Um, and my friend from the gym one time when we were playing said, Susie Brown, why are you not writing songs with how you sing? I just, I can't believe that you don't have anything to say. And I said, well, of course I have something to say. I just don't want to say something that sucks. (laughs) And it was true. I was just such a perfectionist, and I was so afraid to write something horrible that it kept me from writing anything at all. And he said, well, of course you're going to write something that sucks. We all do. You just don't play those ones. Um, So he kind of gave me permission to suck. Um, And with that permission, I wrote my first song. And I didn't tell anyone I knew. And I went to a local bar in Philadelphia and played at their open mic night. I didn't even... I don't think, have a strap for my guitar or know how to play standing up, so they had to pull a bench over to me. And I was shaking like a leaf, and I played my one song. um, And I do not have an addictive personality, but this, to me, was like crack. (laughs) I'm telling you, just getting... It was a love song. It was really vulnerable. And getting up there and just showing that part of me, um, I just couldn't get enough of it. And um, one song led to two, led to three, led to four, led to many. And... um, Within six months, I was playing as many as 10 shows a month while doing my master's degree. Um, And at the same time, I had only about six months left in my master's degree and um, was thinking about the next year. And I was writing a career development grant that would have um, given me five years of funding for my research. And more and more, I just felt like if I get this grant, I'm going to feel like I'm in jail. I felt the world closing in on me. Um, And I actually developed a lot of anxiety. And almost I was at the gym one day and almost had a panic attack. And on the way home, I stopped at my friend Margie's house and I told her, I don't think I want this grant. And she said, well, why are you writing it then? (laughs) And I said, I think I'm afraid to tell people I don't want it. And she said, Susie, that is a terrible reason to write a grant. (laughs) And so I did some deep soul searching and I realized I don't want the grant. I don't really want that life. I'm not like all these people. I'm just different. I just need something different. So I decided to finish my degree. I'd already taken the cardiology boards and just look for a part-time job as a cardiologist. I, I was willing to moonlight for a year or do per diem stuff. I just knew that I just needed to make more time for music. And I could, as opposed to my musician friends who were working at a taco truck, you know, three days a week and living in a nine bedroom apartment with sixteen friends, you know, to make ends meet. I actually had the means to make more time for it. And I felt like I would never forgive myself if I didn't do that. And it really wasn't that I wanted to be the next lady gaga of folk music (laughs) or the next Beatle. It's just it's just that playing music made me feel happier and more at peace than anything I had ever done, and I just, I just felt like I owed it to myself to do it. I felt like, I could get hit by a bus in two years, and what, what will I have been doing? Something that I love, or something that I'm forcing myself to do? Um, so I had what I called my D-Day at work, and I went to all my clinical and research mentors at Penn and told them that I'm leaving at the end of the year to be a folk musician. <laughs> um, and honestly, it sounds like it would have been horrible, but it was so easy because for the first time in my life, I was asking forgiveness and not permission. I honestly didn't care that much whether they approved or not. I was so sure that this is what I needed to do, that it was just going to be what it was going to be. So and so I finished my, um, my master's thesis. I barely remember what this means anymore. Um, it was interesting at the time. And I embarked on what has been a wild ride of a career in music and medicine. Um, I met my husband, Scott, um, who is great. You'll meet him in a minute. Um, We got married. I've made, these are my first four albums. The one on the bottom right is a duo album that Scott and I made together. He thought of the title, not me. Um, Our album doesn't like you either. Um, And then I just released a couple months ago a new album, All of Love and Family Songs, called Sometimes Your Dreams Find You. Um, We moved to Nashville where I took a job at Vanderbilt University Medical Center as an advanced heart failure physician. Um, We've added two members to our band. Uh, That's Josie Josephine on the right and Chloe on the left. We call her Chloe David Bowie. (laughs) And actually our proudest moment so far was when our two-year-old Josie uh, learned how to take a record off the shelf, take the record out of the sleeve and hold it on the edges, put it on the (laughs) turntable. Set the needle down and press 33, we're very proud. (laughs) Um, And this is what my life looks like now. Um, At Vanderbilt I work 50%, so I work for two weeks and then I'm off for two weeks, and that just alternates two weeks on, two weeks off. That's how I'm on tour right now. Um, I spend time with my family, which I value immensely. And I spend time making music, um, writing songs, making albums, playing shows. This is a picture of me and Scott on tour when I was, you can't really see, but I was about six months pregnant with Chloe. I still feel like this some of the time, but for very different reasons. And I think if you're willing to deal with some of the chaos that comes with doing more than one thing, you can really have a lot of fun. Um, This is a picture of me and Scott at the Bruce Springsteen concert. Chloe was about six weeks old and that's my breast pump. (laughs) I pumped in the bathroom of the stadium. (laughs) Um, So, I'm gonna give you some answers to commonly asked questions and comments. What did your parents say, people ask me that all the time. Well, they're right there, you can ask them. But I can tell you that I've been extremely lucky that my parents have been my biggest fans from the beginning. This is a picture of us at one of my first bigger shows, opening for Livingston Taylor at a theater outside of Philadelphia. And they drove down again from Boston for the weekend to see it. I mean, in their words, I'm just so much happier that what could they possibly say? And I think it may have been different if I really was trying to achieve world domination with my folk music and if I was going to just forget about my zillion dollar medical school debt and quit medicine altogether. But that's never been my intention. Um, So they've been 100% supportive, which I'm grateful for. Um, People also say you're so courageous. I think what took the most courage was to be willing to give up the external validation that comes with being, you know, a full-time doctor. I think, for better or worse, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, that prestige of be, prestige of being at Harvard or being at Penn or you know, just being really career-focused, I needed that for the health of my ego. And once I was willing to give that up. And once I realized that really the only validation I need is to take good care of my patients, the rest was really pretty easy. That was the part that took courage. Um, People also say, I can't believe you wasted all that training because I work part time. And to them I would say, I think I use my training in the most unbelievable way I can possibly think of because I have a career that I love that supports me and my family. And it allows me, it gives me the wings to do this other thing that I love so much that brings me so much happiness as well. And I would also say that when I'm alone in an exam room with a patient, I am using every millisecond of training I ever had. You don't need half the patient, half the training just because you work half time. Um, And then people ask me if I would ever give up my day job and I really wouldn't. I love being a doctor. I love that feeling of being of service. I love that it matters that I go to work, and especially in what I do, which is all vat and transplant. These people come to me dying, and it's, they're so vulnerable, and we develop such an intense relationship. And sometimes we can't help them, but sometimes we literally save people's lives and just give them 10 or 15 more years with their kids or their family. And that is such a privilege to participate in, and I, would, I just would never give that up. I could never do it full-time, but I would never give up doing it part-time. And I could never do it full time just because I'm too much of a sensitive emotional musician. I get too emotionally involved and I think I need other things to fill me back up. Um, There are pros and cons of a dual career. Of course, the biggest pro is that I get to do both things. Um, And I think each makes me better at the other. Medicine, I think, was a fabulous preparation for trying to be a professional musician. It teaches you, if nothing else, hard work, and I think hard work is the biggest ingredient in success at anything. Um, I know how to play well in the sandbox with all different kinds of people because you really have to do that to be a good doctor. I know when to call a consult. I know when I don't know. I know when to ask for help. Um, And I think all the practice I've had showing my vulnerability through music has definitely made me a better doctor. Instead of suppressing my sadness at a bad outcome for the sake of being strong for everyone, I now find myself showing my sadness and showing my vulnerability openly and unapologetically. And what I found is that when I'm open about how I'm feeling, everyone else can be open about how they're feeling too and everyone just breathes a sigh of relief. Um, I very much appreciate that I don't have to use art for money. I think if I had to pay my mortgage and my med school debt, writing songs and playing shows, it would it would take some of the joy out of it for me. Um, so on the cons, I make half the money. I have the same you know mortgage and med school loans to pay off, um, but I make half the money. I don't play nearly as much golf as some other people might. Um, I find the transition difficult, and that's part of why I asked for the two week on, two week off schedule. When I've had my heart really open, being a musician and a mom and a wife, and um, I have to go back and take care of patients in the ICU. I find it emotionally jarring, and it takes me a little while to kind of close off enough that I can just handle it okay. And then conversely, when I've been in the hospital for two weeks taking care of patients and being a doctor, it takes me a little while. I kind of have no idea how I'm feeling, honestly, at the end of those two weeks. I have no, I have no idea. How I'm feeling. And it takes me a little while to open up again so that I can be creative. I do find doing 50% of anything I love frustrating. I want to do it 150% of the time. And I feel frustrated sometimes at my loss of potential. I call it like, I would know that bad paper better if I just had more time to read. Or I would be a much better bass player or singer. Or I'd be a better songwriter if I could have more time for it. But I haven't figured out how to clone myself quite yet. Um, So I'm just going to leave you with a few conclusions. The first is if you're unhappy, you're not stuck. You are in the driver's seat. You have control over what you're doing. You're not stuck. You're never stuck. And different things are right for different people. Some people want to be at a major academic medical center working 80 hours a week for the rest of their lives, and that's their happy place. And some people want to work in a rural community medical center in solo practice. Um, And some people want to leave medicine altogether and go to pharma or become a stay-at-home mom or do any other number of things. Different things are right for different people. Um, I feel like I should change this to you will never get what you don't ask for. And by that I mean, I almost didn't apply to Harvard Medical School because I was so sure I wouldn't get in. And actually it was my sister who urged me to apply. She asked me if I was applying and I said no. And she said, why not? And I said, because I'll never get in." She said, Susie, you will definitely not get it if you don't apply. And she was right. Um, and that's, I've learned that lesson so many times. Um, at Vanderbilt, I wanted that two-week-on, two-week-off schedule. And I thought it was sort of crazy to ask for. And I felt self-conscious and um, all those things. But it actually turned out that was a much easier schedule for them to accommodate than if I wanted to be two or three days a week. Um, you won't necessarily get everything you ask for. But if you don't ask for it, you will definitely not get what you want. You need to be willing to compromise. You need to identify what is the most important to me and do everything you can to defend that. And you have to be willing to give on the rest. When I made this decision that I wanted to be a musician part time, I left Penn. I left. I went to a small hospital in Philadelphia that nobody's ever heard of outside the city. It was a big enough hospital that I felt like I could take good care of my patients and I could trust my colleagues. But there was none of that prestige. But I was willing to give that up, that was not what was most important to me. And I, this, another way to say this is, your calendar has to reflect your priorities. I make these decisions all the time, I compromise on things. I was asked to participate in an ECMO review paper that's gonna be published probably in a prestigious journal. I said no, um, I'm not really prioritizing my academic career right now. I take care care of my patients and I take a lot of pride in that, but I'm not trying to become full professor. I just don't have the time to do everything, and my priority is my family and my music, not writing papers, so I said no. And I felt kind of bad about it, but I think it was the right choice for me. So you have to be willing to compromise, you have to know what's most important to you, and defend that, and let the other things go when you can. I think if you keep your feet on the ground, you can have your head in the clouds at least some of the time. And the biggest thing is that if you're happy, you win. So I'm going to leave you with that, and I'm going to call Scott up. I don't know where he is. Oh, He's way in the back. And we're going to play you some songs. Do you always think I'm taller than I am? Not, uh, I think it your <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll play you a few songs and I'll tell you a little bit about them as we go. Um, this first one, actually, the song that Scott wrote. Um, how did, we were talking about good morning, good afternoon, good evening. And it sounds like good everything. And that's kind of the way songs end up being written. It's just day to day life. Someone says something that like, catches your catches your intention and can turn it into a song. Yeah, somebody say it something. It'll turn into a song. <laughs> 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 Not enough medical terms. <laughs> oh yeah, that was
3: <laughs> our last. Kid remember our last gig ended like this. <laughs> you always begin your next gig with your last gig ended. You're like, Why is there beer on that? <laughs> <laughs>
2: This is a song I wrote about that feeling of you be know, almost, but not quite, there. i
3: okay, uh, all the years of gigging in um, dark, drunk, smelly rock clubs. It really doesn't prepare you for this. How about you?
2: because I was pregnant and nauseated and kissing around a toddler um, and just busy. Um, so I challenged myself to write a song a week while I was on maternity leave. Um, and so I just started writing about what was going on, which is that I have kids, have a family, love. Um. Hold <laughs> <laughs> on,
3: and told them I'm in love. They seem like
2: smart, nice people. So anyways, this was the first in a series of songs that ended up becoming my new album. And this was sort of in response to this woman I know who on Facebook always makes these comments about how she's glad she doesn't have kids because she can do all these things that I don't do. (laughs) ... Oh, there's a about to go on, in you hear my baby.
3: Time for one more, and um, we're gonna go with a selection from Fast Domino. I don't think they should have like those classical kind of DJs on those stations. Mm-hmm. We're listening to W. <laughs> Next up in the key of C major. That's Domino. With... What's the name of the song? I oh, may be a wheel. Song. Oh yeah. I'm going to be a wheel someday. <laughs> We scream in this part, we go, yeah. So I don't know about you guys, but I just like to get one good yeah out in the morning. Sort of like you turn the car on and the, the exhaust just pushes the shorts out. Yeah. So it's just feel so cool. when we go, yeah, we scream it. Just scream it with us and everybody will be along fine. You Ready? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
1: Enough. In the light blue over there above the code, Susie and Scott will be playing tonight a little fundraiser for our Berwand Exchange mission up at Mike Sparks Place in Lyme. It's one Cutting Hill Road off the pinnacle just past Coast Pond. And it's at 7 o'clock. So please come up and join us.